There are so many aspects of the Buddhist teachings about the nature of suffering and the possibilities of happiness that resonate with our common sense view of things. The importance of non-harming, you know, for living harmoniously, whether locally or globally. You know, the understanding that non-harming is the basis the foundation of moral values. The understanding that all things in our experience are impermanent and changing, and that the more we hold on, the more we cling to or grasp at that which in its nature changes, the more we suffer. So these are not difficult to comprehend intellectually, even if it's hard sometimes to put into practice. But there's another aspect of the Buddhist teaching that doesn't resonate with our common sense view of the world, that really offers a radically different way of understanding ourselves. It's a radically different understanding. It challenges our entire worldview. And it's this understanding that makes the Buddha's enlightenment such a rare and precious occurrence in all of the spiritual cultures of awakening because it's so unusual. And this is the deep understanding and realization of selflessness. And in Pali, the word is anatta. Sometimes it's translated as emptiness, emptiness of self, insubstantiality of self. This understanding, this realization, is really the great liberating jewel of the Buddha's teachings. And as the observing power of our minds gets stronger, as we can see more clearly and more deeply, we begin to discover that the self, the I, is not what we thought it to be. That we're living in a certain kind of illusion about this. And as we open directly for ourselves, not as a philosophic belief, but through our own seeing, our own clear seeing, we experience directly that the self is not the body, it's not the thoughts, It's not emotions. It's not even awareness. We begin to see that this very deeply rooted notion of self, which we all share, this is an extremely deep-rooted conditioning in our minds. We begin to experience that this deep, felt sense of self, of I, is a concept, is a mental construct. It's actually a fabrication of our minds. And as we even begin to open to this understanding, it comes as both a great surprise, because our whole lives have revolved around this sense of self, 
It comes as a great surprise and also a great sense of relief. You know, all those troubling aspects of our personalities, all the things you've been judging yourself for the last seven days or 20 years, and also all the wonderful qualities that arise in the mind. We begin to see that all of these qualities don't actually belong to anyone. They are all simply appearances or experiences arising out of a set of momentary conditions. One of the most pithy statements in all of the Dharma is expressed by one Sri Lankan monk when he said, no self, no problem. (laughs) So tonight I'd like to speak about how our minds have constructed this sense of I, why, if it is simply a mental construct, why is it so deeply rooted? You know, how does it happen? And how are we not seeing it clearly? And how is it possible to actually see through the illusion of self? You know, to dispel what the Buddha called the wrong view of things. So in order to do that, we need to understand a little bit about the nature of concepts and the role that concepts play in our lives. In our usual way of being in the world, what happens is that a certain experience occurs, a sight, a sound, a taste, or whatever, an interaction, a certain experience occurs, and immediately the mind puts a name on it, puts a concept on it. House, bird, car, person, whatever. And then our mind gets limited in our experience of whatever it is by the very concept that has been created. I'll give you a few examples of this. The son of a friend of mine who's a young boy, no, he's seven or eight in school. And they were in class, and the teacher was just asking, what color are apples? And my friend's son said, white. And the teacher said, no, apples aren't white. Apples are red or yellow or green, but they're not white. But the little boy was very insistent. He said, no, apples are white. And the teacher got very insistent, no, they're not white. <laughs> and then in just this moment of frustration, the, the little boy said, well, what color is it when you cut the apple open? It's white. But we're so caught in the color. Apples are not white. Apples are red or green or yellow. And we don't see things from another perspective. The, the very concept and our attachment to the concept begins to limit the way we see things. Not only does or can it limit the way we see things, 
the concepts we have about experience very often determines our relationship to that experience. And we see that when the concepts change, our relationship to it changes. Just read you a little anecdote that a three-month course yogi uh, emailed to me. (laughs) He said, in the course of remodeling our home, work was done underneath the house. Soon afterwards, the sounds of baby birds could be heard, chirping away at random times. We were delighted, although there was never a visual sighting. One morning I looked up from outside the house. There was a blue heron on, the, on our chimney. It was obviously the mother. We had blue heron chicks nesting underneath our house and felt very excited. A few days later, the chirping happened while our contractor was with us. I pro- proudly had him notice it. And all he said was, your smoke detector needs a new battery. <laughs> <laughs> Very soon we got rid of the irritating noise. (laughs) How often does that happen in our lives? And we view things through one conceptual filter, we feel glad. We filter changes, all of a sudden we can't bear it. We can see this tendency to both solidify and limit our view of experience of the world through so many different kinds of concepts in so many areas of our lives. And sometimes it's funny, sometimes it actually has disastrous consequences. This is not an insignificant process that's going on. I'll just mention a few general types of concepts that have such an amazingly powerful influence in the way we live. Now there are the concepts of place. We as human beings create a certain concept of nations, of countries, of boundaries, of borders. The earth itself doesn't have these things. This is a mental creation. And how many wars have been fought, you know, and lives killed, people killed, you know, because of fighting over concepts. Just thinking now of, you know, everything that's going on in Iraq and the Middle East, thinking historically, so much, so many of the causes of that conflict happened because after the I think I have my history right here. You know, after the First World War and the break of, of the Ottoman Empire, the, the Allied powers divided the lands quite arbitrarily, not, not really in harmony with the different groups and tribes that were living there. And so created artificial boundaries, artificial countries in a certain way, with all the inherent conflicts that that brought. And we see this you know, throughout history. What is strong nationalism about? 
It's about a concept, you know, where we identify with a certain idea, and then all the acts that follow from that. This concept of ownership, we have the idea that we own things, and we see this on a global level, you know, countries owning other countries, or one book I read some, some time ago was so distressingly powerful. It's called King Leopold's Ghost, and it was written about uh, the Belgian Congo, this was earlier in the 20th century, which was basically owned by King Leopold. It wasn't even one country owning it, it was one person owning this vast country, and the incredible suffering you know, of the people uh, who lived there because of this concept, this idea. I mean, it was basically the enslavement of a country based on this concept of ownership and the agreement to it of all the great powers. It's an idea in our minds. On a much smaller scale, and this is to go from where concepts lead to disaster to where concepts just create some little difficulties in our lives and the possibility of freeing ourselves. When I first came back from India, it was after being there for some time, it was in 1974, and I was teaching at uh, the first summer institute at Naropa Institute in Colorado, uh, in Boulder. You know, it was the Buddhist, a Buddhist first beginning, opening of this Buddhist college. So I was teaching there, and they gave me a small apartment to live in. And I was the first one back from India of all my group of friends. So as my friends started trickling back into this country, of course they had no place to live and nowhere to go. So the thought, oh, let's go visit Joseph in Boulder. (laughs) He has a place. (laughs) So one by one, these friends started coming in, and so they were sleeping on the floor, and, you know, I don't know, five, six, seven people <laughs> all living in this apartment with me. And for a while it was okay. <laughs> and then after, I was working really hard. I was teaching you know, many, many classes a day. It was, I was working quite hard. <laughs> and at a certain point, I just felt, I just need some space. <laughs> so I was getting more and more frustrated you know, about not having the space. And after being, but my friends had no place to go, so it was a little hard to kick them out. I started watching, just watching my mind and seeing what was going on. And there was a little moments of understanding there, and I realized that all the suffering was coming from the idea, the concept that it was my apartment. And as soon as I let go of the idea that it was mine, was not a problem because we had shared spaces like that in India, much more crowded, under much more difficult circumstances, and it was fun. But all of a sudden, it was my apartment invading my space. That was a mental construct, and to the degree that I could let go of that, it really became quite easy. So again, it's just to see how much of our relationship to the world is conditioned by the concepts we're overlaying onto it. 
But normally we don't look in that way. We just assume that the concept is the reality. Concepts of place, concepts of ownership. Let me say that I'm not suggesting that these concepts are not useful. They are. They all have a place, and all the other ones I'll mention as well. It's just when we get so fixated on them and forget that they are only constructs, that's when it causes problems. Because then we don't know how to let go of them. Concepts of place, of ownership, a huge concept in our lives, one that has an overbearing influence, is the concept of time. The idea of past, of present, of future. It's very interesting in the meditation to really look at what past and future actually mean. What is our experience of past and future? What is it? When we look, we begin to see that whether we're sitting or just in our lives, we have a certain run of thoughts, a certain category of thoughts, and they may be memories, remembrances, recollections, images. There are certain kinds of thoughts or images that arise in the mind. We create a concept about this particular category, past, and then with a great mental gymnastic ability, It's as if we take this concept which we've created about this particular group of thoughts, we take this concept and kind of toss it back somewhere in back of us as if the past is something back there. And yet when we look carefully, we see that the only way we experience the past is as a thought or a feeling or an image in the moment. How else can you experience the past except as something in the moment? We don't. The past, the notion of past is a concept and we do the same thing with future. Certain kinds of thoughts of anticipation, planning, We create a category, future, toss it out ahead of us, as if the future is out there waiting for us. How do we ever experience the future, except as a thought in the moment? This is so freeing to be able to see, you know, and so I really invite you to look at this, because most of us carry past and future on our shoulders like huge mountains. You know how much time, just on the retreat, how much time has been spent lost in past and future. Lost in these thoughts. Because we've given a reality to these concepts, we've invested a weight, a heaviness into the concept and are not seeing that in our experience, it's just a thought. The thought is very light. Past and future, I mean, they're, they're burdensome. 
And this is another little exercise with this. I'm sure in the course of the retreat and maybe in the next couple of days as well, you know, you're sitting or you're walking and you have some time thoughts about the retreat. You know, maybe toward the beginning, having a hard time, you know, mind restless, body achy, and the thought comes, oh, you know, five more days, six more days. <laughs> you know, and it just feels awful. How will I ever do it? What's happening? What's happening is that there's a thought in the moment. That's all. There's the thought, oh, five more days. If we see it as a thought, it's no problem. A five more day thought. (laughs) It comes and goes to the degree that we believe or create that concept of time and inhabit it. We get discouraged, we get depressed, we're ready to leave. You know, maybe for some of you now toward the end of the retreat, thought, oh, only another couple of days. I wish it were longer. Also just a thought. And yet if we don't see it, so it creates another whole kind of feeling. There's an even more profound application of this understanding that time is a concept, because it's not only past and it's not only future, it's also the present. The present moment is a concept. And it's easy, especially in the context of meditation, where so much emphasis is placed on being in the present moment, you know, and reside in the present and be present. We need to be a little careful here that we don't solidify or reify the notion of present because that becomes another sticking place. There's a verse from the Dhammapada, a collection of the Buddha's teachings, where he says, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, and cross over to the further shore of awakening. With a mind wholly liberated, you go beyond birth and death. You know, that one verse when I read it or say it or hear it, it feels to me it would be enough to enlighten us all. You know, it's so, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present. What's there when we let go of the present? There's concepts of place, of ownership, of time, this concepts of self-image. Now, how many ideas do we create about ourselves and our role in the world and how we think of ourselves and how we present ourselves to others? There's a famous Zen story of this uh, governor of Kyoto going to visit a famous Zen master. And he goes to the gate of the temple and he presents his card and it says, you know, Mr. Suzuki, governor of Kyoto. And the attendant brings the card to the Zen master, and the Zen master says, throw him out. It's the governor of Kyoto. But, so the attendant goes back, you know, and gets very apologetic, but, you know, the master won't see you. The governor, he he was a wise man, and so he thought for a moment, he took his card, 
and he crossed out governor of Kyoto. He said, here, give the card to the master again. The master looked at the card, oh, Mr. Suzuki, I want to see that person. When we present ourselves as governor of Kyoto, we're just living in a concept, living in an idea. It can be helpful to look at the images we create for ourselves. There are some things which we think are even more fundamental, like age, like gender, like race, like culture. But those are concepts too. You know, how old is your breath? Oh, my breath is 60. (laughs) Or 20 or whatever. You know, what color is your mind? Oh, white, black, brown, yellow. It doesn't make sense. What? Your knee pain, is it male or female? (laughs) Is anger or love, is that Eastern or Western? Is that Asian or American? It's not all of the concepts we have of age, of gender, of race, of culture they obviously point to some differences of experience. So it's not to say that they don't. But when we become fixated on that, we lose the connection with what's more fundamental, what's underneath, and how much divisiveness in the world comes because of fixation or attachment in one way or another to these concepts. You know, we see it so clearly in racial discrimination. You know, a war is fought over religious beliefs or class distinction. I mean, all the many ways our concepts create divisiveness in the world. So we need to see that. We need to see how our minds are working, how our minds are doing this. Use the concepts when they're appropriate, when they're helpful, when they serve the good. Being able to see past the concepts to something more fundamental. So the deepest concept, the one that is most deeply conditioned and is the source of so much of the suffering in the world, is the concept we have, the notion we have of self, of I. We create a reference point for our experience. It's the idea that there's someone behind experience to whom it's happening. Right? I'm thinking, I'm planning, I'm judging, I'm walking, I'm eating, I'm whatever. We are creating this reference point, we are creating this concept of someone to whom experience is happening. But that is a mental construct. That is a mental concept. You know, we call that reference point I or me or self or Joseph, but there's actually no one behind the process. 
a phrase that Munindraji, my first teacher, used so thousands of times so that it really reverber- has reverberated in my mind. He would say over and over again, this whole life is empty phenomena rolling on. Just empty phenomena rolling on. Empty meaning what? Empty of self. Empty of I. In the Buddha's understanding, and can be our own understanding, we begin to see everything quite differently than through this concept of I, or concept of self. We begin to see that self, I, Joseph, each one of us, is simply a designation. It's a designation for a certain pattern of changing experiences. The pattern is there, but there is no abiding substratum to which the pattern belongs. So I'll give you a few examples, because this can be hard to... As I say, this does not fit our common sense view of things. So this is a stretch. Let yourself be stretched a little. The possibility, anyway, of stretching. So I'll give you a few examples of what this means. One of these examples I've been using for about 35 years. (laughs) And a course would not be complete without it. (laughs) So for those of you who have been coming for 35 years, (laughs) here it is again. (laughs) You know, on a clear night, go out, look up at the sky, and probably most of you can recognize the constellation, the Big Dipper. It's one of the easy constellations to recognize. Okay, this is what, the sixth, seventh day of the retreat? This is kind of your toward the end of retreat test. Okay, Is there really a Big Dipper up in the sky? (laughs) There's no Big Dipper. (laughs) What we're seeing are points of light, which we're calling stars, in a certain pattern, which we're calling Big Dipper, Okay, so that's not so hard to grasp. That Big Dipper is a concept. There's really no Big Dipper up there. (laughs) But more interestingly, try going out, looking up at the sky, and not seeing the Big Dipper. It's very hard. It's like we have been so conditioned to see in a certain way. You know, we've been conditioned to pick that particular pattern out of all the stars in the sky and see it through the veil of that concept. Very hard not to see it. So if it's hard not to see Big Dipper, you can imagine how hard it is to be with the experience and not see self, not see I, not see Joseph because the pattern has become so familiar to us that it's difficult to drop down into the level of direct experience free of the concept. So this is a very important 
transformative stage in meditation practice. It's when we go from the level of concept to the level of direct experience. That's a major level shift. Louise Erdrich, who's a wonderful Native American writer, she wrote, those powerful moments of true knowledge which we paper over with daily life. But every so often something shatters like ice and we fall into the river of our own existence. We are aware. When I read that, it just so resonated. Falling into the river of our own existence. Something shatters like ice. The concepts shatter. And we fall into the river of our own existence. That is the meditative process. So what is this river of our existence? What is this direct experience which we can be with in our meditation and in our lives? The Buddha talked of four four realities that we can experience directly. And this is a framework for understanding how to be with our experience, either free of the concept or seeing through the concepts. So the first of the realities is something very tangible. It's just the material elements of our physical world. And you may have noticed as the meditation, as the mindfulness gets stronger, we begin to go from the concept or image of the body to the actual sensations. We go from the image, back or leg or knees, to the sensations that we're feeling of pressure, of tightness, you know, of tingling, of vibration. Contrary to what you may now believe, you don't feel your back. There's no sensation called back. There's no sensation called knee. What we're feeling is tightness. We're feeling pressure. We're feeling whatever it is. Then we put a label, we put a concept on that constellation of sensation and we call it back. Do you see the difference? Why is this so important? It's important because Concepts don't change. The word doesn't change. Back today, back tomorrow, back yesterday. So as long as we're living in the world of interpretation, as long as we're living in the world of concept, we fall under the sway of the illusion that things don't change. And yet as soon as we drop into our actual experience, we see it's changing all the time. It gets so interesting in in our practice as the mindfulness and the concentration gets steadier, you know, and we are really feeling just the the changing sensations of our experience. Very often, both the sitting and the walking, the form of the, the sense of the form of the body can fall away. You know, where we're not 
experiencing it as that concept, but we're just experiencing sensations moving in space. And it's not that we don't use the concept of form when appropriate. You know, you want to get a shirt the right size. (laughs) Oh, just fit these sensations in space. (laughs) So we use the concept when appropriate, but we're not imprisoned by it. But even as we begin to experience the body as an energy field, which is what it is, still the attachment to the concept of body goes very deep. This is very strong in us. Not only the concept of body, but the, the feeling of ownership of the body. That this body is me. This is who I am. There's a, there's a price to pay for not seeing this clearly. And the price is that we get very attached to these bodies, very attached to the bodies of others. And a consequence of that, for very many people, is a fear of death, of loss of the body. One of my favorite stories in this regard has to do with the death of the 16th Karmapa, you know, and the Karmapa is the head of one of the great lineages of Tibetan Buddhism. And the 16th died about eight, 18 years ago or so, actually in Illinois, in Zion, Illinois. And he's, his, the body, his body was completely riddled with cancer and you know, it was really difficult. And, and he had his disciples and students around him and they were all grieving. You know, you know, the fact that he was so sick and dying. And at one point it said he just turned to them and he said, don't worry, nothing happens. And such a startling statement. You know, to be there right on the cusp of death, the body, you know, full of disease and cancer and everyone around, you know, really upset by it all. And there he's saying, don't worry, nothing happens. Because for him, the body was not self, the body was not, it was just some changing elements. And so an image which might help us see that aspect a little more clearly, you know, imagine going to the movies and getting totally engrossed in the story where we're really involved, you know, emotionally involved. And then you happen to glance up and you see the light being projected on the screen through the film. And you realize nothing at all is really going on. There's there's nobody there getting killed, nobody, you know, in a car chase, whatever the movie happens to be. It's all just a play of light and color. And that's all it is. It's just kind of a dance of that. That's the sense that the Karmapa was speaking. Don't worry, nothing happens because nothing was happening in the first place. <laughs> so this is this is a very different way of understanding this world. You know, most of us and most people in the world are so fixated on the conceptual understanding of what it is and the mistaken notion of solidity and 
this is I, this is who I am, and all the attendant consequences of that. So I hope you're getting a sense that even though the practice is very simple, you know, in and out, rise and fall, we're just coming back again and again to being with our direct experience. (coughs) The implications of this training are profound. Because it's a way of opening to a radically different view of what is really going on. Ramana Maharshi was one of the great Indian saints of the last century. He said, to identify with the body, to be attached to the body, and yet seek happiness is like trying to cross a river on the back of an alligator. (laughs) Not a good strategy. Okay, so we train ourselves to drop into the awareness of what we are calling body and really being there with what the actual experience is. So there are the material elements. The second reality the Buddha pointed to, where he said we can touch this directly, is consciousness itself. You know, the knowing faculty. We know different sense impressions all the time, all day long. You know, we're aware of sight and sound and smell and taste and sensations and thoughts. So all day long, this knowing process is going on. It's going on effortlessly. It's going on spontaneously. It's very easy, and we we do this a lot, is to identify with the knowing. You know, even as we see that objects may be changing, it's like we have this strong sense, well, I'm the one who's knowing it all. And so we create this sense of self in that identification. The meditation begins to open up the understanding that the knowing itself is an impersonal process. It's not I, it's not mine. In every moment, moment after moment, different experiences are being known. And I found it helpful as a way of experiencing this for ourselves to reframe or note into the passive voice. For example, sound being known, thought being known, sensation being known, you know, movement being known. Because when, when we put it in the passive voice like that, it takes the I out of it. It takes the self out of it. As an experiment, as a, as a way of practice. You know, next time you, you're with the breath or you're with a simple movement, Let's do it right now and not postpone it. <laughs> if you just, just, you know, if you lift your arm and then lower it. So, so we'll start with a simple question. Do you know you're moving your arm? Does anybody not know? <laughs> okay, so, so lift it, you know you're lifting. Coming down, you feel those sensations to the sideways. Does the knowing have to catch up? 
Or is it just right there with it? It's like you can't get ahead of it. You can't, no matter what you do, how fast you move, whatever direction you go in, the knowing is going to be there. It's so simple. And yet, so often in our practice, it's like we're struggling as we create this sense of inner struggle to know what's happening. (laughs) The knowing is already there. And it's always already there. And it's there spontaneously and exactly. And so we can really settle back just moment after moment and see in every moment there's simply something being known. You know, and it might be physical sensations, it might be mental objects. The knowing is arising all by itself, spontaneously, effortlessly. Okay, so there's the physical elements, the material elements. There's consciousness or knowing, which is just this process going along all by itself. It's like a current, a river of consciousness flowing along, arising with every single object, every moment. And all we need to do is settle into the river of our existence. Settle back into it. The third of the realities the Buddha pointed to that we can touch directly are what he called mental factors. And these refer to a whole group of mental qualities which arise in different combinations, in every moment of knowing. The knowing is pure. Its only function is to know. But then all of these mental factors you know, appear in different patterns. And these mental factors are the building blocks. They're the building blocks of thought. They're the building blocks of emotion. They're the building blocks of meditative states. Some are wholesome meaning they lead to happiness, some are unwholesome, meaning they lead to suffering. And they're the very ordinary states we experience of generosity or love or kindness or greed or hatred or restlessness or mindfulness or concentration. All of these are the the different qualities that can arise at different times in every moment of experience. Now we create this sense of self. We create the concept of self every time we identify with any of these factors. I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm restless, I'm concentrated. The I, the mind, is extra. We're adding that to the experience. One point in my practice This was quite a few years ago. I was going through a long and intense period of fear. Huge amount of fear was coming up. Some of it was on the emotional, psychological level. Some of it just felt primal. You know, it wasn't about anything in particular. It was just, it was so deep. And I had been working with it in different ways, you know, for quite a while. And one time Sharon and I, We're teaching a course in Texas. We were going for a walk after lunch, and I started going on and on about my fear. 
you know, ah, this is so deeply conditioned. It's going to take, you know, 30 years of therapy to unwind all this. And it's just, I was creating this whole story of self, you know, and my fear. And, and she just turned to me and said something which I had and have said tens of thousands of times. But sometimes, you know, it's just the right moment to hear something. So she just turned to me and said, Joseph, it's just a mind state. And in that moment, yeah, it's just a mind state. I was making this whole self story in it. It's just a mind state. The fear arises when certain conditions are present. The conditions change. The fear disappears. And so a way of understanding this and the non-personal nature of mental factors is that it's the fear which fears. It's love which loves. It's anger that angers. It's joy that joys. Each of these mental factors arises at different times, each manifesting its own nature. None of them belong to anyone. We can begin to see a little more deeply the non-personal nature of these mental factors and emotions. And Mark spoke about this uh, the other morning quite uh, beautifully when he said, really look to see what triggers these different mental states. You know, what triggers an emotion? Very often it's a thought. Thought comes and an emotion is triggered. We don't invite it. We don't say, okay, anger, come now. You know, it comes when there's a certain cause, a condition, which might be a thought. Sometimes the emotions condition thought. You know, we can be in a mood or emotion, and that mood can condition a whole run of thoughts in our minds. These states are also very conditioned by our particular level of understanding. And what makes one person very unhappy could leave another one quite unmoved or even happy. Some years ago, a friend's, friends took me to this big rock concert in the Oakland Coliseum. You know, it was like, I don't know, 70,000, 80,000 people. And we went in the middle. I couldn't believe it. It was actually my first big, you know, one of these Maha rock concerts. It was so loud and so noisy. It just felt like this assault to me. It, it felt like this amazing assault on the senses. It was kind of like a hell realm. <laughs> and there were 80,000 people totally enjoying themselves. Of course, we don't know what help they had. <laughs> But it's all just conditioned responses, you know. I was conditioned one way, these other people were conditioned another. Just want to read something from Ajahn Chah, who was one of the great Thai masters, Thai forest masters, about how we mistakenly take 
all of these moods and mind states and emotions, the different array of mental factors, to be self, to be I. He said, within itself, the mind is already peaceful. That's that basic knowing quality. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. It becomes agitated because moods deceive it. Sense impressions come and trick it into unhappiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow, but the mind's true nature is none of these things. Gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself, and then we think that it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. But really this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful. So we must train the mind to know these sense impressions and not get lost in them. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. So the the material elements, this the flow of consciousness, the spontaneous flow of knowing, there's the arising of all of these different mental factors in different combinations. And the last of the realities that we can touch directly, the Buddha called Nibbana or Nirvana, the unconditioned, the unborn, the highest happiness. Now in different traditions, both different Buddhist traditions and perhaps other spiritual ones, speak of or describe this highest good in very different ways. The way that I found the most pragmatic for us, you know, because it can get very abstract, the unborn, the unformed, the this and the that. But the most pragmatic way of understanding this highest freedom the Buddha spoke of very often in his discourses. He talked of it as the mind free of greed, free of hatred, free of delusion. So there's a very clear measure for us, you know, as we look into our own hearts. We can experience this freedom as Mark was talking about it the other day, this, the coolness. In, in ancient India, they said, they used the word nibbana or nirvana to describe when, when you cook rice and then it cools down, they would say colloquially, the rice has nibbana'd. You know, it's, it's that cooling down of the fires of the defilements. So we get, we get real tastes of this many times in our practice. You know, when we come out of being lost in a storm of anger or desire. Really watch, take, take a look. See if you can see that moment when caught up in some strong emotional reaction and then that moment when it ceases. In my experience, it's, it's like being let out of the grip of something. You know, it's like that particular mental quality had kind of held the mind in a grip and that, whew, the sense of ease, the sense of coolness, the sense of relief. Notice in an even simpler way, just coming out of being lost in a daydream or a thought. 
At a certain stage in meditation practice, it's called the stage of equanimity, the mind has settled into a flow of smoothness and ease where there is no movement toward or away from anything. A very high energy level is going on and it's just this smooth current, this flow of phenomena. So this is something that is not some far-off attainment. This is possible you know, for all of us. And it's said that that particular stage of meditation is likened to the mind of an arhant, the mind of a fully enlightened being. You know, so we can get this taste, this real genuine taste of freedom. And at the deepest level, the reality of Nibbana, the unconditioned or the unborn, refers to the absolute stilling of all the mind-body formations. Now we, have you had the experience of being in a room and all of a sudden, <clears throat> if you're in like a kitchen or dining room, and all of a sudden the, ref- the hum of the refrigerator goes off and that sense, you know, the peace of that. And yet before it went off, we didn't even know that there was a disturbance. That's this moment, this, this more ultimate nature of Nibbana. It's like the refrigerator hum goes off. <laughs> and what's left is that incredible sense of peace, you know, of stillness. We could think of it as the experience of zero, you know, or the zero that. We, there's a line from a, the Polish poet, which is hard for me to say her name, the Nobel laureate, uh, Wisława Simboszka. I think that's how it's pronounced. Uh, she's a wonderful poet. She wrote, There is so much everything that nothing is hidden quite nicely. You know, we're so involved in the refrigerator hum of our lives that the peace of the stillness is hidden quite nicely. And so in our practice, what we're doing is opening to that place of stillness, to that place of peace. So this is what our practice is about. We go from the level of concept, we begin to understand both the role and the danger of concepts in our lives. We see the usefulness of them and the limitation of them. And we drop down into the level of direct experience. We drop into the river of our own existence. And as we do this, we get glimpses of something beyond our notion of conventional reality. We're not just swept along in these patterns of our conditioning. And we really touch something that transforms our vision of who we are and of what the world is. And even though it may just be glimpses of that space, we may not dwell there for very long, we have this deep intuition and understanding that it is really the source of everything we value in our lives. 
So this is, this is the heart of the practice. I'll just close with this one teaching from Kalu Rinpoche, another of the great Tibetan masters. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. Like we're living in the world of concept. There is a reality, and we are that reality. When we understand this, we see we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, we are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. Being nothing, we are everything. That is all. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. And be with the knowing of the sensations of each breath, free of even the concept of breath. And notice how effortlessly the knowing is there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.